looking at Romans 28, starting in verse 16. Oh no, Acts 28. Acts 28, starting in verse 16, and we'll pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, as we, we open your books of life that were recorded many, many years ago, I just pray, O oh Lord, that we, we glean out the blessings that are in them, in this text for ourselves. I pray that the Holy Spirit enlightens us. I pray that you guard my lips to represent you properly. And Lord, I pray that these words transform our lives. That these words change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I'll just read verse 16. Otherwise, it's going to get a little long, I'm afraid. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. You may be seated. We're coming to the conclusion of the book of Acts. So I'll be giving some, some thoughts on it, try to wrap it up. I was thinking of doing a conclusion sermon, but I think we'll just try to cover everything in this one today. But Rome, you know, Paul, he had a, a rugged journey to Rome, shipwrecked. And back on another ship. And now they're about 140 miles from Rome, because that was the, the deep water port, the closest deep water port. So him and his companions would be walking or riding in wagons on a road that is called the Ambien Way. It's named after the, the chief architect of that road, Ambius. And I want you to think about it. This road was built in 325 B.C. And they're still using it today. How long do our worlds last? Is that a couple thousand years? And they're still using it. You can go there and drive on this road. The inns, the bakeries, the buildings, many are still there. Not the same owners, of course, but many of these are used. Well, this tells us we have to realize that even though the Romans at that time were non-believers, pagans, they are good at what they built. It's a lesson for us that God uses all of his creation, all of his people, to advance his kingdom. And that's what this is, to advance society. This road is a blessing to all people, even today. It was a blessing to Paul and his companions back then. But that is how God is in control, moving his kingdom forward. He uses all men, believers or not. And he gives gifted men... I mean, if Ambius was here today, I think Payne and Dolan would be mad because their money, their profits from building roads would go down. But it was an important road because if Rome had to get an army 
to move them by sea quickly. They could go through this road 140 miles quickly in any weather to get to the battlefield. But also there were inns along this road, or taverns they called them, where people could stay every 30, 20, 30 miles. And they were told earlier in the text that many Christians, faithful Christians, heard that Paul was coming. And they walked 20 or 40 miles just to get to be with Paul and to welcome Paul. Another great, great example for us as believers. How do you love the brethren? The scripture says you'll be known by how much you love one another. How do you love the other Christians from other churches, from other nations, from other parts of the world? How do you welcome them? How do you support them? It's a demonstration to the world of how you love Jesus by loving the fellow believers. Very important. Now remember, there were more prisoners than Paul in this column of wagons or on foot. Remember when the ship was going down, some of the guards said, hey, maybe we should kill all the prisoners so they don't escape. They didn't. We don't know how many prisoners there were. But the normal process was once they got to Rome, these prisoners would be handed off to the Roman fortress, the guard who was in charge of that, and they would be locked up until they had their day in court, or if they were to be in prison, they'd stay there in prison. But notice this, Julius, the centurion who was in charge of Paul, Paul is treated different. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. I believe this is God's intervention. Paul still had his task to do. And his task to do was for him to be able to move about among the other believers, explaining the discipline of the church, the transfer of the church to the normal order of elders and deacons. So pretty much, Paul was given what we would call the ankle bracelet of the day. His ankle bracelet was a guard, 24-7, chained to him. And these guards, and I say these guards because they did four-hour shifts, so six guards a day, and I don't know if it was the same guards every day or if they had a rotation, would kind of have to tag along where Paul wanted to go and hear what Paul had to say. How many of those guards do you think we will see in eternity? sitting for hours with Paul as he expounded the duties of the church, of elders, from the least of the things of the, of the duties of 
Christians to the deepest. I'd say it was a divine blessing for these guards. So where does Paul go? What does he do? Well, I think we can imagine. What does he always do? He always wants to talk to the Jews, the Jewish elders. He wants to share with them. In verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Notice again, they wanted the death penalty for Paul. But yet, Paul is still eager to go ahead of more Jewish leaders to present the gospel, to present the kingdom of God. And notice it says he has no malice against his own people, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Imagine that. He's been stoned by him, beaten, beaten with rods, threatened, and he brings no charges. He doesn't rail for railing. You know, Paul had a heart for the lost, even those who persecuted him. We must also have a heart for the lost. It must be our motivation. We must respond with biblical love, just as Paul did. We have to get over the malice, the I want to get back, I want to get even. It should be, no, we want to share Christ with you. Again, That is our command, even in difficult times. That's why I mentioned earlier, we live in a life of conflict when we are Christians. People will hate you because they hate God and his laws. But we still are to bring these truths. Because these truths are written on their hearts, their conscience. They suppress it. We are the ones who keep bringing it up. And they have to either work harder to suppress it or eventually yield to Jesus Christ. That is our task. We are to share God's truth. As we continue on, it says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regards to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Again, notice Paul wants to share biblical truths. And he starts by mentioning the hope of Israel. Remember, he's speaking to Jewish scholars here. They knew exactly what that meant. He's speaking about the Messiah. 
know, isn't it sad even the Jews today who reject Christianity are still looking for the Messiah? Somebody who has already come, somebody who is ruling from heaven at the right hand of the Father. Yet they're still looking. How sad. God has already made himself known. But notice these Jews, they said they haven't received any letters about Paul's upcoming trial and no witnesses against him had arrived. Here again, you know, I'm going to we see another, how the ungodly, when they act biblically, the Romans had a pretty good legal system, a biblical system. Witnesses, counter-witnesses, the defendant, the accusers could both be heard. And that's what God had commanded. Again, the ungodly can advance God's kingdom, even if they're non-believers, when they follow biblical law. And just like any other law, it has to be followed with a true heart. And that's where the problem usually gets difficult. You have people with biases, people who will silence the other side, take people off Facebook nowadays. But if God's law is followed by a faithful people, you know, the founders of our Constitution said these laws, this Constitution is for a godly people and it will not work for an ungodly people. That's paraphrased. But the intention of the heart and not acting as tyrants or going against the law makes laws livable. But Paul, he had a heart for the, reje- for the Jews, even though they rejected him. And he must love them like we must. He's sharing biblical truth time and time again. But the ungodly... Many times they will not listen. But unfortunately, these guys, they want to listen. They want to hear Paul. And why didn't they hear about the witnesses or get any letters? Well, we know why. Remember when Paul's ship left, it was late in the shipping season. And they paid the price for that. They took a chance. They were shipwrecked. You know, these... Witnesses against Paul were commanded to stand before Caesar. They had a goal, but they'd be coming later. They probably waited. We're going to wait till spring, till the shipping season. We don't want to risk our lives. And no ships coming during the winter season would mean no letters as well. But they were commanded to testify. I got called up for jury duty, and I was complaining. I just had to go in one day, and then they didn't call me anyway. But just think here, these guys would be tied up probably for a year for this trial. The witnesses would come. They were commanded to come, or they would be in trouble. So you'd have the defendant, the accuser, and the witnesses 
But notice these Jews, they did hear about this sect. They heard about Christianity. Another thing, that is how Christianity spreads. It's a ground up. A few Christians here, a few Christians there. But they have great influence in the culture. They're heard about. And these Jews, they said, you know, there was bias against them. What did I say about conflict? Oh, yeah, everybody were spoken against. So everybody in their circle, they're speaking against Christianity. But it says, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So I give these Jews credit. They're willing to hear Paul out. They're willing to have a conversation with him. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about the Jews, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Here we have a summary of what the church's mission is. From morning till evening to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Saints, the kingdom of God is here. It is here and it is now on this earth. And we as his believers are called to advance his kingdom just as Paul was in the early church. We must have the mindset that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father. He will not step off that throne for one second. Not for one moment. He is reigning there and he will reign forever. And you heard me speak on my views concerning the people who believe that we're going to be raptured out or that Satan is the king of this earth or the ruler of this earth and that he will rule for a thousand years. It's a bunch of garbage. Our God rules. He will not step off his throne and hand the earth over to Satan, not for a second. God created this earth. He said this earth is good. He said there will be a new heaven and a new earth. It means there will be a renewed earth like it was before, and that will be our home. God will not turn it over to Satan. He will not abandon his saints. He will not dethrone himself. Satan is a defeated foe. He is in retreat. God's dominion will take over the earth. God said, I will advance my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the church is advancing. Yes, we will lose ground when the saints become apostate and do not do God's will. But when we do our will, when we do our part for the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom will be advanced. And it is the individual saints, you and I, that advance the kingdom. 
Satan is defeated. He's trying to grab up as many souls as he can as he is marched toward hell, driven toward hell. Christ won, we win. The church wins. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It will never be turned over to Satan. The kingdom of God is here. We are part of it. And what tools are we required to use to advance God's kingdom? Well, it's the whole counsel of God. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Notice it takes time. These are biblical scholars, and they're there from morning till night as Paul is sharing the biblical truths from the Old Testament. Many churchmen of today do not even want to preach from the Old Testament. It's ridiculous. It's all God's word. It is all needed for us to advance his kingdom. But notice he explains to them about all the words, all the prophets concerning Jesus. Why did Paul have such confidence? Why did the early church have such confidence in these prophetic readings about Jesus? I mean, where did they get them from? Well, Luke 24. When these guys are going to Emmaus, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? <clears throat> and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus taught the church about all these prophetic utterances from the Old Testament. That's why we and the apostles and the early church could speak with such confidence that this is about Jesus. Because Jesus taught it. And it was passed to the apostles and it's been passed on throughout the church through all of history. <clears throat> That is why we can speak forcefully, passionately, but tempered with love, but also with great confidence. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the God spoken of in the scriptures. You know, John the Baptist spoke of what? The kingdom of God. In Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus spoke of what? The kingdom. <clears throat> Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Matthew 12.28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then what? then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
because it was foretold that the Messiah would cast out demons. Mark 4.11, And he said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And Mark 1.14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming what? The kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what we are to present to everybody. Using the whole counsel of God. God rules in every area of life. Even the kings of the earth are commanded to kiss the sun. And they will kiss the sun. They will bow down and kiss the sun. Maybe not on this side of eternity, but surely on the other. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul has given a complete presentation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus to these Jews, as we must as we must to all men. And what is the result? The result never changes. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Now that's how it all says. Some will believe. Some outwardly will reject. Some will walk away scratching their head, pondering what they heard. Irregardless of the results, our duty is always the same. We are to proclaim the kingdom of God. The results are not up to you and I. We are to plant and water. The results are God's. But also we must be like Paul. It is fair to give people a warning of what awaits them if they reject the gospel message. It is wise and loving to tell people there is a hell and if you reject this message that will be your future home. It's a loving thing to do that. People will not like that. I know from personal experience, they use adjectives to explain to me what they think of me that I don't care for. But they cannot deny it is God's truth. And Paul goes to the Old Testament because these are scholars of the Old Testament. And they knew exactly what he was saying here. He goes to the book of Isaiah. Like I say, he does not let it rest. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they, can, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts 
and turn and I would heal them. It comes from Isaiah 6 when Isaiah stood before the Lord. It says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Paul uses this to give to the Jews of his day. Isaiah was preaching to a nation that was under condemnation from God, under judgment. They had been so rebellious and rejected God's laws and his principles so long that God turned them over for judgment. It was God who was stopping their ears and sealing their eyes and their understanding from hearing the message of salvation. Until the nations, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, and the land in a desolate waste. And the Lord removes the people away in the captivity. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Just think about Isaiah's task. His task was to preach God's truth. However, he knew that it would be direct or rejected by most, if not all, of the people. Yet he was to proclaim the truth of God and they would be judged by those truths for rejecting it. So Paul is telling these Jews, you know, you reject this now. Condemnation is coming. Judgment is coming. A lesson for us. We should speak of hell and judgment to people. We should scare the hell out of people. Literally. It's part of our duty. It's part of the gospel message. You need a savior or judgment is coming. You're a lawbreaker. You need a savior judgment is coming. They cannot receive the love of God until they know the consequences of their sin and judgment coming. They will grasp for a Savior then if they understand the future that lies in front of them without Christ. Popular, no. Biblical, yes. Commanded for us to do, absolutely. 
God will have his church. Some will reject, but others will believe. And it says, therefore, let it be known to you this, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. God will have his way on the earth. If his own people will not listen, the Gentiles will listen. He will have his kingdom. He is having his kingdom. Will he have it here? Will he have it in this region of Alto, Wapan, Wisconsin? That's up to how we, his saints, act toward his word and how faithful we are to him in presenting God's kingdom in our spheres of life, our spheres of influence. And it's a ground-up movement. It's what we do in our everyday lives. It's when we look in the mirror with our self-government and say, God, how am I doing? What do you want me to do? And we can say we are representing him properly because then our family will see that we are representing him properly. Our church will represent him properly. And it will go right into the sphere of the political arena that will start representing God properly. That's what happened in Rome. Rome would become the hub of Christianity. It was because the individual saints were living out their lives, passing that on to generation and generation. Yeah, it took a long time. But God did advance his church and have his way. He always will. He always will. God is still with Paul. Remember, Paul's free. Trials take a while. At least they had an excuse for trials to take a while back then if you're doing six months on a ship. And he lived two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is amazing. Freedom. Paul is given freedom as a prisoner. He's a prisoner of Rome, but the very fact that he had a Roman guard fastened to his wrist 24-7 gave him protection. People knew if they were harming a prisoner of Rome, the Romans would come down on him hard. So Paul was moving about for two years preaching without having to look over his shoulder. Are these Jews going to beat me? Are they going to stone me? He could go where he wants. He had his ankle bracelet handed, you know, hooked up to him. But it shows how God intercedes for his saints. Paul's work was not done. Our work is not done until we leave this earth. God is using us to build his church. And the more mature we become as believers, the more effective we will be in building his church. 
Paul is a prisoner. If found guilty, he will be killed, but he doesn't seem to be too concerned about that, nor should we. Our days are fixed. Our numbers are fixed. We cannot add to it. We cannot distract from it. So we should be bold in our lives. We should be courageous. When God calls us home, by whatever means he decides to call us home, we're going to go. Now it sounds like Paul's story ends, but how does it end? According to church historians and other historians of that era, Paul does go before Nero. And remember, a couple sermons back, I said, you know, the historian Tachius said Nero was a fair and honest ruler in the beginning. And I believe in 60, I think it was 62 AD, they let Paul go. They found no guilt in him. So he continued his missionary journeys. Some say he made it all the way to Spain. He kept doing what he did best. Starting churches, equipping churches for that transition to the regular means of grace for the churches, elders and deacons. But something happened to Nero. You know, Nero had good advisors he was Seneca's brother. I mentioned Seneca before. And his brother were, they acted like godly men. They weren't believers. But they were fair and just, and they influenced Nero. But somewhere along the way, line, Nero snapped, and he became a tyrant. He became a tyrant. Ruthless. We know the cause of it. Satan somehow influenced them. But Rome burned. I think that was in 64, 65 AD. And I'm sure you heard the rumor they said uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, from some of the historians I read that uh, the fiddle wasn't even invented yet. But I think they were saying that to say Nero did nothing as Rome burned. In fact, it was Nero's fault that Rome burned. A tyrannical system of government will never survive. They will rise and they will fall because they're unbiblical. In Rome, they said, oh, just give the people bread and circuses, and we can do whatever they want. But when you have a tyrant, and they completely drain the working class, in this case in Rome, the Christians were becoming the working class. They were following God's law, saying, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But trust me, when tyrants keep robbing and robbing to the point that your children are hungry or you're hungry or starving, 
They can give you all the circuses you want, all the entertainment you want, but if your stomach isn't full, there will be rebellion. And if you're dying anyway, there will be rebellion. It was Nero's tyrannical practices that brought down Rome. But really, it was God. And at that time, the Christians were welcomed in Rome. They were spoken of well. But because Rome was being destroyed, someone had to be blamed, and Nero blamed the Christians. And in 65 AD, he had Paul and Peter executed. You know, another lesson for us faithful servants, faithful servants. God may have us killed. We don't know. But it's only because God allowed it, and it was that time that he was calling Peter and Paul home. Our Lord may return, but I doubt if he will that soon. I think all of us in here will die. How we die, who knows? I'd prefer to go like Paul. He was beheaded quick, and it's over, because he was a Roman citizen. Peter, crucified. I wouldn't want to go that way. But if God does have us come under persecution, he will be there for us. But our lives are in God's hands, and we must remember that, because that is how we will live our lives. We will be more courageous when we know that whatever happens, God is still near us and God is still using us. He's using Paul in chains, chained to a prisoner. It's the letting go of ourselves and serving God in spite of the consequences. When we look at the big picture, We know we all will die. It's appointed by God. How we die isn't that relevant. As we know we will be with the Lord. So we must live boldly for Christ and his kingdom. I think that's, that is the greatest lesson we come from this book of Acts. We are part of this kingdom. We are to advance his kingdom and protect it. And that is how we do, we do that by understanding God's truths and living them out in our lives, our daily lives. It will have an effect. When we teach our children, when we teach our neighbors, our fellow employers, our employees, the things concerning God, God says his word will not come back void. God will take some and pluck them into his kingdom, and it will keep growing in advance. We win, God wins, God has won. He will not turn this earth over to Satan. 
when we have an eschatology, I mean a future view of victory, it changes how we live. And that victory may not be ours that we see in the future, but it could be our children's or our children's children. But we must do our part to advance God's kingdom. We see the wickedness in our own nation. The church must rise up and represent God properly. We have the answers. If we continue on this wicked path, we will fail as a nation. It's a certainty. An ungodly rulers, an ungodly tyrannical system will never survive. But God's church will always survive. His kingdom is here. It will not be destroyed. And if you're a true believer, you're part of that kingdom. And even if you die, you will not be destroyed from that kingdom. You'll be with the Lord for eternity in his kingdom. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we, we've looked at this book of Acts, I just pray that you embolden us and give us a, a, a eschatology, a future of victory, proclaiming that you have one Lord. You are there to assist us, Lord, in the tasks that you assign us. And there will be difficulties, expect it. But even through these difficulties, your kingdom advances. You mature your saints through the difficulties. Teach us to be such a people. 